Let's uh, bow together in prayer. Our Father, again, we are thankful that we are blessed to have the living Word of God in our language so that we can understand it, study it, think about it, be challenged by it, be corrected by it, be equipped by it, and to learn more about Christ and to appreciate all the more what we've received through Christ and His giving of Himself as a sinless sacrifice and as a powerful um, act of victory over the grave and over sin and death and hell. We thank you that he is raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of you, our Father, in great glory. He's coming again someday. Lord, as we await his return, we pray that you might help us to continually learning, sitting at his feet, being taught by him, being discipled, and that we might therefore, Lord, be able to teach many others that they might follow you and know him and serve him as well. Toward that end, we pray you bless the preaching of your word today in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm assuming you have Romans 15 open in front of you as we're continuing in our series where we started a couple weeks ago and we noticed the fact that Jesus Christ exemplified selfless, sacrificial love. There is no one who has ever displayed or exemplified more biblical or agape love in the world than Jesus Christ. And Jesus, interestingly enough, called upon his followers to imitate him. He said in John 13, to love one another even as I have loved you. Now when we talk about love, it still sounds like it's rather nebulous. It sounds like it's just sort of a, a vague, well, um, I'm waiting for a feeling to come in my heart, but we're saying no, biblical love is not that way so much. Uh, Jesus is anticipating and expecting that this kind of reciprocal love or one anothering love is going to characterize his people um, as we are his children by faith. Now, if you ask the question, what is the most obvious indicator that a person is a follower of Jesus Christ, a genuine Christian? How would you answer that question? You don't have to answer it out loud, but just think for a moment. Some of you might say, well, it's probably the person who knows the most theology and can explain it the most clearly. Well, according to Scripture, that's not true. Someone else might say, well, perhaps it's the person who has the best attendance at regular uh, corporate worship uh, week by week. No, that's not true. The answer is, it's the person who loves other believers and Christ. That's really the answer. Jesus said, John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so we're in a series now in which we're examining the idea of one anothering love, trying to understand what does it mean to love someone within the body of Christ? What does it mean to uh, truly love each other? And the word we're using for that idea of one another love is reciprocal, which just means I'm giving and you're giving. I'm, I'm receiving, you're receiving. The one anothering, it goes both ways. Now, we understand this kind of love is, by definition, it's always expressed in community. There's a sense in which the one anothering love is among other believers in the context of the church, the local church. And biblical love is normative within the context of the family of God. 
And so the God's Spirit, we already know, if you've read your scriptures, you know that the Spirit of God has already created a unity. He has already put us together. When we become a believer, we're joined with other Christians and other children of God into the family of God. And the Spirit of God enables us then to have as part of the fruit He's bringing out of our hearts is a love for each other. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And so it's love. And as members of the body of Christ, we share this idea of things in common. We share the new life in Christ. We have the same Lord, same Savior. We have a common destiny. We share the same rule of faith and practice. The scriptures are equally authoritative in our lives. We share the same baptism, the same sanctifying and dwelling Spirit of God. We all share these things in common as members of the spiritual family of God. And Jesus places a high priority on this idea of being united together as members of his family. Look what he said in John 17. Maybe you got your Bible open. You look at John 17. Jesus is praying to his Father. The whole chapter pretty much is his prayer that he's praying before he dies on the cross. He's praying for his apostles. And eventually he prays for those who will believe through the apostles. But listen to what he says, verses 20 and 21 of John 17. He prays that through the apostles' words, those who believe in Christ through the apostles' words, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's profound to think that we're going to have that kind of unity. I mean, that's, that's true closeness and sharing on a deep level and understanding of a sense of vulnerability and transparency among members of the Godhead. He said, that's the kind of oneness I hope will be a part of my people. No wonder that the apostles picked up on that in the New Testament. So Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, be diligent to preserve the unity that the Spirit has already made in a bond of peace. He says that's already in place, this unity. Unity is not to be destroyed, and that's why Paul was so upset in 1 Corinthians. He's writing this church in Corinth, and he says, I exhort you that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment, 1 Corinthians 1. So I'm back, just giving a backdrop here of the fact that biblical unity is obviously something that is high priority to God. But this is important to understand because as you read the New Testament, you've got to understand there were some major differences among the people who made up the church. Because if you know anything about Paul, he's, he's constantly addressing these vast differences because Paul himself understands them profoundly because Paul came from a Jewish background. He was a Roman citizen, but he was a Jewish background. He was a very strong adherent of listening to the teachings of the scriptures, the Mishnah, the various teachings of Jewish uh, uh, commentaries, if you will. He's following all these regulations, all these rules, and keeps apart from those who don't follow them. And those who don't have not followed them in their Gentile background and who did not grow up with those things, they are coming to faith in Christ. And these two groups are now coming together in the local church. They are vastly different as different as night and day, oil and water. You can shake them up, but they still sort of tend to go back to their own ways, and they don't really want to integrate, apart from the gospel, bringing them to do that. 
So if you ask Paul, what were some of the hindrances to this unity? He would say, my goodness, it's all of the fact that these people have nothing in common as they come into Christ and they see things completely differently in terms of their background. Well, some of us may not feel like that's the big problem we face today in terms of the threat to unity. Perhaps some of us would say, well, the problem is our lack of similarities. We really don't have that much in common with each other. We have a little bit of a shared, maybe cultural experiences. Some of us may have gone to similar schools or live in similar communities, but some of us would say, well, no Christians are really exactly alike, and so therefore we have a lot of differences among us, and that's a real problem with unity. Well, let me, let me tell you something. Uniformity within the body of Christ is non-existent. You're not going to have cookie-cutter Christians that all look alike, think alike, act alike. I wonder how many of you in your own family, your biological family, or your adopted family, how many of you in your family, you all think alike on where to go out to eat? We used to ask that in our family. Every so often we'd have a treat and we'd go out to eat and we'd say, where do you want to go? And there's five different choices. Well, I like this. No, I like that. We've already been there. I like this. Okay. We've got vastly different opinions about what kind of foods we like. Does everybody in your family act the same? I hope not. I hope they don't act like me. And does everyone in your family have the same preferences? I mean, you see it in your own family. How much more within the family of God? These same dynamics are going on. There is diversity in every family. And you bring that into the concept of the family of God and begin to ask yourself, the unity that the Spirit has established. He's saying you belong to each other. You are united now to Christ. And because you're united to Christ, you're part of this body. And you are therefore joined with other parts of the body, attached to the head. And there's this unity there. And the problem is, is that the unity that has already been made by the Holy Spirit is threatened and undermined often by the members of that body who lack patience toward each other who at times have a spirit of indifference toward other members of the body. Eh, who needs an elbow? Who needs uh, a heel? You know, what's the big deal? Sometimes there's resentment toward people who are different from us and don't seem to see things from our perspective. And sometimes there's the frustration that builds with people who don't see eye to eye with us on things we think they should. This is sort of the backdrop to, I think, some of the concerns that Paul is facing here in Romans chapter 15. And maybe some of you have this thought that, you know, if people would just see things my way, there'd be great unity within the church. If everybody saw it my way, hey, no problems. I came across this poetic philosophy. This one guy says it this way. Believe as I believe, no more, no less that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat as I eat, drink as I drink, look as I look, do as I do, then I'll have fellowship with you. You say, if my brothers and sisters would completely agree with me, we would have great sense of unity. That's how, that's how many of us 
deep down, the assumption is that's the way we operate. So I'd like to speak it to that kind of viewpoint, that kind of conviction. I want us to look again at what Paul is saying here in chapter 15 of Romans. And I want us to notice here, he's going to give us a recipe for how love operates in a situations where believers disagree on a number of non-essential matters. And he's going to show us what love looks like in that kind of context. The verse we're considering this morning is verse 7 of Romans 15. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Question number one. Why does God call his people to receive or to accept one another? Well, again, we could take a lot of time in answering this question, but if you look at this particular part of Romans, chapter 14, chapter 15, there's a lot of background here of what's going on, and Paul is concerned about two groups within the church. There are brothers and sisters in Christ, true believers, and they are considered to be the stronger or more mature believers, and there are the weaker believers, perhaps the younger in the faith, people who have just come to faith, and there are two groups within this church. That's a good thing, by the way. We like the fact that there are younger believers along with older and more mature believers. Not necessarily older in age, but uh, they've, been they've been a Christian longer in their life. That's a good thing. But it's becoming a wedge issue between the two groups the more that they've had this issue uh, arise and become more talked about and more of a, of a conflictual problem going on here. And the issue boils down to what kind of food is appropriate to eat. Here we go with food. Food. All right, so what kind of food are we talking about? Well, if you look at chapter 14, verse 17, it's clear that Paul's trying to say, listen here, the kingdom of God is more than just eating and drinking. And apparently that was a big deal to a number of these people within these two factions. Apparently there's a lot of arguing going on. There's a lot of falling out. People are getting their feelings hurt. Uh, there's a lot of standoffishness and people are like, I'm avoiding this guy. I don't, I don't buy what he's doing. That's wrong. And so there's, there's becoming a wedge issue that's pushing these two groups apart. I don't know what the wedge issue is in your life, but oftentimes in marriages, there are wedge issues. In youth groups, there are wedge issues. Among Christians, there are wedge issues that push people apart. And it's a shame because what? because they're both members of the family of God. There is this unity that's there, and yet it begins to push them into their own corners. Well, again, some of the weaker ones, we would say, are the young, younger believers in the faith. They're recent converts. They are saying, listen, we are not comfortable with eating the meat that they sell at the local stop and shop. Because the meat that they're selling there, nothing against stop and shop today, I'm talking about back in the Roman day, uh, they would call it uh, pause and party. I don't know what they're talking about. Anyway, you come on in and enjoy some of this food because this meat has come from a process of first it's butchered and then it's offered to the local gods in town at the various temples. And that meat has been offered to them. And then we bring it over here. We sell it for a great price. And the reduced pound per you know, price per pound is a great deal. And so some people were going in there, they're buying the meat and they're eating it and they're thinking, oh, it's delicious. And these younger believers say, are you kidding me? 
Do you know where that meat has been? It's been offered to those idols. I used to be in those temples. I used to be a part of that worship service. I don't want anything to do with that. I want a clean break. You're compromising by eating that kind of beef. Come on. You say you're sanctioning those kind of idolatrous ceremonies. Meanwhile, there's another group of the church family there, those who've been in the faith a little longer, and they're saying, we know those idols are nothing. Those idols are not true and living God. There's only one true and living God. It's Jesus Christ. And, and so therefore they're saying, listen, we have no problem with eating this leg of lamb. We have no problem with eating this rump roast. It's delicious. It's protein. And the price is really decent. So they're enjoying their freedom. Here is the wedge issue. It's pushing them apart. They're dividing over this. It's causing a rift. And so just like in the church in Rome, there's such diversity, people who are much different from each other, the same is true in Long Island, isn't it? We have people who are vastly different from each other, living very close in community here, which is fascinating about this area. Uh, I think we noticed, uh, where were we? We were... Um, uh, well, our daughter says that she's up in Vermont, and she's, she's, been, she's bilingual, and she says there's nobody up here who speaks Spanish. There's just not a lot of diversity in that part of the United States. Everybody sort of looks alike. Everybody sort of has similar kind of uh, background in some ways. Well, here in Long Island, we got lots of people who are different, different races, different backgrounds, different ethnic groups. And this Roman church clearly has got a heritage of people who came with rich Jewish traditions and teachings, and they've, they're very much enamored with those things. And then there's another group that came from Roman background and Gentile uh, paganism, and they're they like, have none of that. And these two groups are easily sort of wanting to keep their distance from each other, sort of a little bit standoffish. There's other things going on in the text. I won't go into it. There's a whole difference in, in socioeconomic. There's people who are well-off and people who are poor and slaves, whatever. There's a lot of differences. But look at chapter 15, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says, he's insisting on one thing. <clears throat> now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. What's he saying here? He's saying the mature ones, those who really have anchored themselves in the scriptures, who really understand Christ very deeply, have grown in their Christian life. You've got to understand, life is not about you just pleasing yourself, doing what you want to do, being enamored with <clears throat> thinking you're right about everything and expecting everybody to agree with you. Just doing whatever makes sense to you is what you think is your freedom, and therefore you just go about doing it. No, he says, Be, get beyond that. So he calls the followers of Christ who are mature to follow Jesus' example. Believers are called not to live to please ourselves. We're called to live to please Christ. We're called to think as Christ thought. Think about others, not just yourself. Philippians chapter 2. Paul's praying, verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, he prays. He says, Lord, you're going to have to work in these people's hearts. This is not a natural way of thinking. 
So he's praying that they would be granted to be of the same mind, one voice, glorifying the same God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us of Christ and who we are in Christ. We talked about that in the first hour in Sunday school. He reminds us of what real biblical love is. The love that Christ has shown us is the love now that is beginning to stir up within our hearts, getting us beyond ourselves. Biblical love welcomes differing preferences. That's sort of a key phrase there. That's right, I want to write that down. Biblical love welcomes differing opinions, differing preferences. The gospel helps us to change our attitudes toward people who are different from us. And so he says, accept one another. Now, I've got a question for you. How many of you uh, follow the tradition, and this is not a bad thing, so don't be embarrassed. How many of you, raise your hand, every year about December 24th, there's a number of things that are wrapped under this kind of green tree in your house. How many people do that? They have gifts wrapped up on the tree. Okay. How many of you still have all of those gifts or presents still wrapped sitting on the floor of your living room or in your house, wherever it was? Anybody? how ridiculous it would be to have a present and to leave the present as a gift saying, this has got your name on it, Johnny, it's yours, and then expect Johnny to say what? Oh, thanks, I'm just going to sit it right here. It's going to stay here all year. Who does that? The whole idea of giving gift is what? So that it will be received, so that you actually accept it, you open it, you therefore make use of whatever it is they're giving you. You take it and begin to enjoy it. That's what Paul is saying in this text. He's saying, listen, there are other members of the body of Christ that have been given to you, included in the body. Don't just leave them unopened. Don't just ignore them. Don't just walk past them. Accept them, welcome them, receive them. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this word accept. I looked up a little bit of some um, people that are smarter than I am who are you know, more careful in how they explain this stuff. And they say, to accept the word here means to take to oneself, to admit or receive a person into fellowship. So, for example, it means to treat somebody with kindness, to really sort of say, I, I value you, and so I'm going to show you that I value you by doing something that shows you you really are embraced by me. And here's a biblical example. Look in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, the last chapter of Acts. Just a few pages to the left there. Or a couple of flips of your finger on your your pad. Paul is, I'm sorry, Luke is describing here in this particular account of the Apostle Paul. He and some other folks are on a boat and they're being escorted with the military carrying him under arrest over to Rome. And so they've had a shipwreck off the coast of Malta. So here they are coming out of the shipwreck. They're they're all wet. Uh, It's probably the waters are fairly chilly because of the storm. And and so here they are really with no resources. Everything they had in the boat has been lost. And they just show up in verse 2 of chapter 8. The natives, that is the the people who live there on the island of Malta, showed us extraordinary kindness. What made it extraordinary? 
For because of the rain that had, been, that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and did what? Received us all. They accepted us all. They welcomed us into the resources they had. They said, come on in here. You people are obviously in a bit of a mess. And so come on in. You're cold. We welcome you to enjoy our fire and enter into what we were doing before all this terrible storm happened. In the spiritual realm, we as believers are to be freely and without reservation taking to ourselves our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to view them as equals in the kingdom of God, regardless of their background, regardless of their social status, regardless of their race, their faults, their preferences. We welcome them. We accept them. It's exactly what Paul urged Philemon to do. Philemon was a well-to-do, rather um, rich man who owned probably a lot of property, and he actually had people working for him in employment. Some guy ran away from him named Onesimus, and uh, in his running away, he's been arrested, and he's in jail, and Paul is sharing the gospel with him. He comes to faith, and Paul now is writing to Philemon, and he says this, verse 17 of Philemon, if you, Philemon, accept me as a partner in the gospel, accept Onesimus as you would me. He's saying, listen, welcome this guy back. Give him, give him the sense of welcome and receive him. Now, I need to put some boundaries around this receiving idea, okay? This is not a, a blanket receive anybody and everybody who says, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower, I love Jesus. Okay, there is some discernment that goes with that kind of acceptance. I need to just lay that out here so you don't hear me the wrong way. If you read 2 John chapter 10, we're not told to accept any and every person who professes Jesus. He says in 2 John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is, it doesn't have sound doctrine and don't understand the true uh, Christ, you're, not, you're, you're following a false Christ, if you will, it, he says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. In other words, don't welcome false teachers into your home and treat them as if they're a believer and say, hey, I'm going to share everything I got with you. No, they're not on the same page with you. That would be inappropriate. So you don't welcome Jehovah's Witnesses or a Mormon into your home and say, hey, I'd like you to live with us for a while. We'd like to share in your ministry. We'd like to support you. That's just not appropriate. So those who don't hold the sound doctrine, they're not received into your homes. You don't have shared, committed fellowship with them. And the same would be true with someone who may be a part of a church who after a period of time may be involved in some particularly sin pattern. There is a, an area of their life they're not willing to deal with this particular sin pattern. They will not repent. They've been confronted appropriately. And it's a flagrant sin. It's an unrepented sin. It's an ongoing sin. And eventually the church says, I'm sorry, but you're no longer part of us because you no longer are acting like a true believer who obeys Jesus. So there's a need, 1 Corinthians 5, to what? Cut off fellowship. You no longer receive that person. But if anyone who is different from you comes professing Jesus as Lord and Savior, and by his pattern of life bears witness that he is true in his profession of faith, its earnestness in his sincerity, you accept that person. You receive that person into your, your family, as it were, on the basis that you mutually share together the life 
of Christ. You look past the things that you might say, oh, I don't have that in common with you, like piercings or tattoos or their hairstyle or their skin color or their preference of music or their political opinions or their ethnic background or whatever it is. Those are non-essentials. You've got to look past all that and welcome them. You don't hold against them their faults, their differences. You welcome them as an equal in the family of God. Let me bring this down to real brass tacks. I want to talk for those of us who are married just for a moment about the idea of accepting in Christ your spouse. One of the things that we know, those of us who have been married for any particular time, you know you become very much aware of lots of things about your spouse that maybe other people may not know, or you see them when they're not so put together. And you also, also have a long list of things. You've had some time with them. You've, you've understood that they may have hurt you deeply in some different things. And so there's a danger within a marriage that little wedge issues begin to push this couple apart. And I remember years ago coming across, I just mentioned recently, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who died as a martyr during World War II. Uh, I came across a book that had a number of his writings from prison. So he was corresponding with people. And included in that was he wrote out a sermon for a wedding. And listen to what he is saying now to a couple that he's not able to deliver the message in person, but he's written it, somebody's going to read it for him. Listen to the advice he gives based on Romans 15, 7. Here's what he says, quote, Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In a word, he writes, live together in the forgiveness of your sins, for without it there is no fellowship. Least of all, a marriage. It cannot survive apart from forgiveness. He says, don't insist on your rights don't blame each other, but accept each other as you are and forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. I may have given that to some of your weddings uh, as part of my sermon I used because that is a, such a helpful quote. What's he saying? Accept each other as fellow members of the body of Christ who fail who have particular preferences. I think how sad that some people, they marry their spouse and they, after a while, resent the fact that their spouse is different than they are. It's natural, but it happens, right? It's like, oh, he's into sports. All he thinks about is, is you know, athletics and whatever. And Oh, I'm getting so tired and fed up of all that. Meanwhile, she's into what? Uh, organizing or, or uh, uh, what do you call it? Those um, scrapbooking. Uh, you know, or, or sewing or doing things that are crafty, you know, clever things. Or maybe it's the opposite, you know, maybe, maybe she's into sports and he's into collecting stuff. And, you know, it's like, it's like, I want nothing to do with that. Rather, the accepting is to say, I see this as being part of what makes you, you. I welcome this. I want to share this hobby you have. I want to learn how to appreciate it like you learn to appreciate it. I want to see this as being, this is what uniquely you're bringing into our relationship and I'm going to learn and grow through this. Even if it's learning the batting average of some player you don't really care about. I mean, accept that person. 
Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying let a gamer just play games all the time on his videos and never have a conversation with each other. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you have to learn to see that people have differences and you embrace them. That's okay. I could say a lot about that. I don't have time to fully expand on that, but you get the point, I think. Let me just bring one other thing, if I could. How about let's talk about youth group. I can remember years ago, I was a leader of youth group uh, in, in various churches over the years, and I can remember how easily they all just get in these little groups. And there's a little group over here, and this little group comes over, and they sit over here with them, and this little group sits over here, and these are the athletes, these are the brains, these are the nerds, you know, these are the cool people over here, the ones that are really popular, and these are the people who are shy and, and never talk to anybody and feel very uncertain about themselves, and, right? And what's the general tendency? I'm not going to welcome you because you're different from me. You're weird. And they love to just emphasize the differences between each other to the point where I don't want anything to do with you, so get away from me. I'm not talking to you. They, they rather freely express those kinds of disdain for each other. I'm not saying it happens here necessarily. I'm just speaking in general. I don't know what exactly goes on. But I'm just saying, if we understand the principle of what Paul's saying here, he's saying what? I'm going to go out of my way to be friendly to this person, even though I don't have a whole lot in common with them. It may seem awkward to me. Love compels me to do that. Therefore, I initiate a conversation. Therefore, I welcome them and say, come talk to my friends over here. I ask about their week. I, I say, I'll pray for you. Whatever. Show an interest in that person. See that there's more to them than what the world judges them as. This person is not worth knowing. That's what they get at school all week. Youth group should be a place where people are welcomed. Where they are at least shown that there's a, some, a sense of which I receive you and I, I appreciate who you are. Okay. I think you got my point. But I think it's very practical when these things get down to brass tacks. All right, let's move on to question number two. What pattern are we to follow in receiving one another? Well, it's very clear in the text. Just as Christ also accepted us. So to meditate on the gospel, to meditate on what God has done in Christ in accepting us is so helpful for our hearts. When we become people who are not easily loving other people, we come get focused on ourselves and, oh, get our thoughts onto Christ and how did Christ deal with you? How has Christ responded to you? If you're struggling with this area of accepting other people and, 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 be, and be able to get past all those differences, may I remind you, look at the difference between you and Christ. <laughs> did you have anything in common with Jesus? Here we are, defying him, rebelling against him, living unto ourselves, showing him no respect, no honor, blaspheming him, blaspheming him probably. And so the reception we received is we didn't get what we deserve. The reception we received is we were spiritual enemies. We were people who were helpless sinners, ungodly rebels. And in the gospel, Jesus received us to himself by way of the cross. He himself went to tremendous suffering, pain, and punishment in order to receive and welcome us. I can't help but think of the 15th chapter of Luke and the whole emphasis of three different parables that Jesus took the time to recount under, in the context of a bunch of people who are, what? we got a wedge issue here. There's some people who say, 
oh, Jesus, what are you doing hanging out with, quote unquote, sinners? You don't do that. You're supposed to be a righteous, religious person. You don't hang out with these kinds of people. And so they're, they're finding that to be offensive to them. So Jesus does what? Well, he gives them three stories trying to illustrate the fact that this man, this Jesus, receives sinners. He welcomes them. He accepts them in the gospel. And so in order to do that, of course, he's, he's telling this parable. He depicts a scenario where someone, there's three different scenarios where something's lost. It's a shepherd who's lost a sheep. It's a woman who has very little resources. She's lost a tremendously valuable coin that's part of her, what she's living off of. It's like losing Social Security benefits. Um, and it's a father whose son has abandoned him, run away from the family, pretty much no longer is considered a son any longer, and he's lost his son. Each of the parables designed to show that the conclusion at the end, when the, sheep, when the shepherd finds the sheep, when the woman finds the coin, when the father finds the son coming home, that the response is not a, well, I guess I found my coin, Maybe I'll pick it up. Maybe I won't. Or, well, there's the sheep. You know, I've looked all over. Uh, maybe you can find your way home. You know, it's not an indifference. It's not a ho-hum. There's a sense of great joy. There's a sense of celebrating, welcoming it, receiving it. So therefore, in heaven, there's this joyous celebration when a sinner repents. And the question is, are we like that older brother in the third parable? Or sometimes we say, well, you know, Lord, why do you have to be so good to these people? Because they're, they're a little odd. They're strange. I don't have much in common with them. We, we sort of find ourselves maybe questioning why God would give them as much of his grace as he would us. They have different skin. They have a different accent. They have different views of music. They, they actually raise their hands during worship service. <gasps> oh, my. These small differences between us sometimes become big differences. But the question is, do we share Jesus' compassionate heart for sinners who repent? On another occasion, when Jesus is gathered with these folks who are so religious and so caught up in themselves, I mean, really, it was, it was ugly. And Jesus is questioning, they're questioning Jesus, why are we going to eat with people who are this kind of inappropriate living? And Jesus says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, it's those who are ill. I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Jesus receives all kinds of spiritually sick people. And my friends, we should be doing the same. We should be doing the same. When people come as members of our body, we say, come, welcome. I receive you. You're different from me. You have a lot of things that are, we don't see eye to eye on everything. I receive you. I show you love in the name of Christ. That leads me to my third and final point real quickly here, and that is, what's the goal of receiving one another, accepting one another? Well, obviously, it's the glory of God. It's not so that people can think a lot about you and say, oh, isn't he such a friendly person? Isn't this person have just such a, a welcoming attitude? Well, those are nice things. I mean, that's obviously a good characteristic to have. But the bigger question is that if my heart and if my actions are saying to you, I welcome you and I appreciate you and I want to get to know who you really are more and more and I want to explore the uniqueness of who you are and what you bring to the kingdom of heaven, 
and to our family as a, as a family of God, the more that's being lived out, guess what? We are therefore conveying clearly uh, in some small way of what God is like, that God is the God of the nations, that God is a God who, who loves diversity among all different kinds of people, all different kinds of languages, all different kinds of cultures. And God says, I love to have my name worshiped and reverenced among them so that that would reflect the fact that there is, I am a God of diversity and a God where my glory is being known all around the world. And therefore, when that's being done within the family of God, that in a small way helps people see the wonders and glories of our God, who is so gracious, so loving, so accepting of people because of Christ. God is glorified. When stronger, more mature members are patiently enduring those who are younger in the faith, who don't, who, they're not abusing their liberty, they're being sensitive to people around them, and this kind of dynamic of showing forth the mercy and the love and the graciousness of the gospel is what makes people appreciate what a welcoming, accepting God we have. May God work in our hearts day by day to live that out with real people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you today, there may be some here today who are wondering how is it that God would ever accept me. There may be some who are here today, Lord, who feel the weight of their sin and who are very much concerned that they know they're unworthy to be welcomed by Jesus. They know full well that they have offended him, that they've gone off their own foolish way, that they've indulged themselves in many forms of sin. They would be ashamed to tell anybody and everybody everything they've ever done. And yet Jesus knows all that. But Lord, I pray today that the gospel, the good news of the gospel, would be heard and received by everyone here, that they would, Lord, welcome the gospel message and embrace Christ by faith and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for welcoming me because you have now taken my sin upon yourself. You've been raised from the dead, showing that that payment was sufficient. And now you're calling me to follow you no matter the cost, to trust you by faith. Lord, I pray that you might open the heart of anyone who's here today who wonders if you will indeed receive them. Lord, thank you for receiving them as they come to you in faith, repenting of their sin. And Father, for those of us who have been accepted by Christ, I pray that you would give us a tender heart, a welcoming heart, a heart that receives people who are different from us within the body of Christ. Give us your eyes, Lord, to see the dignity, the value, the uniqueness, the wonders of people who are different than we are. Help us to celebrate them, Lord. Help us to, to fully embrace them in ways that, Lord, show that we truly are filled with your love and your receiving heart. And therefore, Lord, be glorified among us. We ask this for the glory and the honor of your name. <clears throat> we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.